Good morning, church. This is the day the Lord has made. We're rejoicing and glad in it. It's a great spirit in the house today. I know you've enjoyed worship so far. Welcome. Glad to have you today. If you're joining us online, so pleased that you've chosen to be with us. God bless you. Thrilled to have you. Thanks so much. Uh, how are you doing with the story? This is chapter 15. Now, let me give you a warning. We are in the dog days of the Old Testament. There's a black hole that you can fall into right now. Uh, the kingdom has been divided. It's a, it's a period of few faithful kings, a lot of bad kings. The prophets come on the scene. There's, there's, there's the Assyrian over, uh, over, over running of the kingdom. The Babylonians take people into... Ex there's all kinds of complexity, all kinds of confusion, all kinds of stuff. As I say, could fall into a black hole. Don't let yourself do that. Stay, stay current. Keep reading. We'll get through this today. I want to talk about choices that are made in the context of this encounter between Elijah the prophet and these 450 prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. Uh, it could be pronounced Carmel, but we're from Indiana here, so we call it Carmel. And so you'll understand the vernacular. All of us make decisions in life. I want to contend today that the decisions we make determine where we end up. Good decisions in our lives, we can admit, are to our benefit. Bad decisions we've made in our life have consequences. And if you just consider all of the ways that choices in your life impact your life, not only your daily life with your money or your business or your family or your neighbors, but think about your future. Think about your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids. What kind of legacy will you leave? What, what do you want them to remember about you? What do you want them to say about you? I think the choices we make will go a long way in determining those kinds of perspectives. So we pick up the story today in chapter 15. This is the book of 1 Kings. And because the Bible is arranged topically and not chronologically, as I mentioned, it's easy to get a little bogged down by some of these details that we're in right now. Uh, you may ask the question, why, why did God allow the kingdom to get divided? We have north and south, Israel and Judah. The nation has been split in two. Folks couldn't agree on fundamental things. And so you have divided kingdom. And, and as I say, these other nations overwhelm them in the course of time. Why did God allow this division? Let me remind you, the Garden of Eden was God's ideal. This is his vision for the world. He wants to be in intimate fellowship with us forever. That's his vision. That's his plan. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden rejected that vision and all hell broke loose. God reasoned that in order to get the people back into intimate fellowship with me forever, which is a place called heaven, and God is going to get us there one of these days, uh, he will fulfill his purpose and plan for the world. And in order to model for the world along the way, God's design and vision for this intimate fellowship, God said, I'm going to form a nation. He raised up a guy named Abraham, and this nation emerges over time. And for God, it was a model of what it looks like for the rest of the world to see what it looks like to be in relationship with God. So he'll have a people in relationship with him, but the people fail. They rebel. They become complacent. They start worshiping pagan gods, false gods. And so along the way, God allows this division and, and this upheaval. And so he begins to send prophets to the nation. Uh, he sends nine prophets 
to 19 different kings in the northern kingdom of Israel over a period of 206, 208 years, something like that. And this is God's way of trying to keep people on track. So let me just bring us back to this focus on the idea that decisions and choices directly affect all of our lives. Let me put this statement on the, on the screen. Who or what we worship is the most important choice we make in life. Do you agree with that? Who or what we worship is the best and important choice we make. I believe that. Whatever captures our hearts will capture our devotion, capture our time, our service, all of that. The way we live and behave, depending on what gets in our hearts. I believe that. Look at this statement on the screen. God invites us to enjoy all his gifts, but to worship him only. Now, God gives us gifts of all sorts of varieties, good things, wonderful things, blessed things, but he wants us to keep our focus on him. I wonder if you're more like me that you've discovered how easy it is to allow something else to take the place of God in our lives. You find that true? Say yes. That you find other things easily distract us from our primary relationship with God. This happens to me a lot. And so we find ourselves reaching for other things for our security, our identity, our satisfaction, our meaning in life. And let me just remind you that the God that we serve is the God who made us and sustains us and holds us in his care. He's the God who forgave us and saved us and redeemed us and given us a purpose in this life and a hope for eternal life. So this is a wonderful God. This is a great God, very generous God. And yet it seems that it's so easy for other things to slowly push out this amazing God with other things, lesser things. Listen to this statement. Are you listening? Sometimes the things that distract us are the very gifts God puts in our lives to enjoy. Is that possible? The, the very blessings that God gives us can become distractions to our devotion to God. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, Beth and I have been married for 45 years, and early in our marriage, Beth discovered that she was not content. I have always been content in my, in my marriage, just for the record. I've never been dissatisfied in any way. I'm happy. I've always been happy, happy as I can be. Beth was, was in a rough patch, you know, about year four or five or something like that. And so she devoted some prayer to this. And she found that her prayers were going something like, you know, Greg doesn't do this. And Greg isn't all of that. And Greg really falls short in the other. Now, I know this is very difficult for you to even imagine <laughs> as a possibility. But this was her experience. So she says. And God really helped her in that season. Because as she began to complain about me in prayer, God simply said to her, you can't expect, God, uh, expect Greg... <laughs> It's Freud in there, sorry. <laughs> the whole story confuses me. That's why I get mixed, mixed up. You can't expect Greg to meet all your needs. You have to rely on me to do that. Now, when you hear that, you go, yeah, that's right. That's right. We shouldn't expect anyone else or any other group to meet all of our needs. We should rely on God who promises to meet our needs. And when you hear it, you go, well, yeah, that's right. Well, okay. Then that's how we should practice. 
We shouldn't let even the most wonderful of our relationships keep us from our priority and intimacy with God. Are you following? It's so important, such an important deal. So now we pick up the story in 1 Kings 18, and a guy named Ahab is the king of Israel, and he is described as wicked. How many of you know that doesn't look good on the resume? He's wicked. He did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Oh, that's quite, a, quite an accomplishment. Look at 1 Kings chapter 21. I'll put it on the screen. There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. Oh, yeah, Ahab and Jezebel. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. So they have turned the people of the northern kingdom, Ahab and Jezebel, away from the true God. And as often as the case in these days, God would send a prophet to confront these evil kings. Now, the prophets uh, came in all kinds of uh, varieties. These, these were men who, who had different backgrounds and, and, and a different profile and all of that, but they all had basically the same message. All of the prophets had basically the same three-point sermon. The first point that they would make in their preaching is, you, Israel, Judah, northern or southern kingdom, have broken the covenant, you must repent. And so the prophets would come along and point out that, that the people had strayed from God, had become complacent in their spiritual life, and they should repent. They should turn away from their sins and back to God. Now, there was a list of sins that were common among the prophets. And those sins were, included idolatry. We've already defined idolatry as a person or a thing or a thought that usurps the place of God in your life, becomes an idol. Now, back in the day, folks struggled with idols. We don't have any trouble with idols in our day, right? Not at all. So idolatry was a big sin. The second one was social injustice. Now, we hear a lot about social injustice in our day, but in those days, because of the pagan gods they worship, uh, we know for sure that, for example, girls, young girls were prostituted in these pagan temples. I mean, we, we call it trafficking now. It still happens all over the world. It's a horrible evil and a terrible problem. But in, in this case, there were pagan temples where girls 9, 10, 11, 12 years old were placed in these temples. Men would go there, have sex with them as a sacrament to these gods. Horrible. And so the prophets would say, that's, a, that's unjust, that's wrong, that's evil. Uh, the, the sacrifice of babies. This was another big one in the day. There was a god called Molech in these times, and this god especially enjoyed the sacrifice of children. So we'd take newborn babies and just throw them on garbage piles, garbage heaps, and let them die. Or they'd build huge fires and have a big pagan ceremony, and they would take their babies and throw them into the fire. Horrible, horrible stuff. So social injustice. A third of, of the sins that the prophets pointed out to the nation was re re religious ritualism. This is where the prophets would say, look, you're saying all the right words, in the religious ceremonies, you're bringing in occasional sacrifice as ordered by the law, but your hearts are far from God. So don't think for a second that you can pretend like you're religious and that's going to fool God because God's not interested in your rituals. He's interested in a meaningful connection with you at the level of our heart. And of course, this sin is rampant in the world today as well. 
have lots and lots of religious people who think, well, I show up at church once in a while and throw a few bucks in the offering, and I've done my part. What are you, nuts? What are you, crazy? Why bother? That has nothing to do with what God has intended for your life. He wants to know you and have a relationship with you. And so this first point of the prophets was, you've become careless, repent of your sins. The second point was, if you don't repent, judgment will come. And the third point, and all the prophets embraced these three points, is that even though you may experience and suffer the judgment of God because you failed to repent of your sins, in the end, God is going to restore you, and ultimately, he is going to restore you completely in relationship with him through his Messiah, who will come. And so there's always hope at the end of the prophetic message. Now, the, the prophets were not popular. You can imagine, they're the guys coming along pointing out sin. You can't do that. Stop that. That's idolatrous. That's, that's religious. That's not what God wants. And so the, the, the people hated the prophets, and so they persecuted them and ridiculed them and oftentimes put them to death. You know, Jesus actually came along and said, look, they persecuted the prophets who were before you, so don't be surprised if they persecute you. So here's a snapshot. This is how all happened in about 875 B.C., so 875 years before Jesus, and Elijah is raised up as a prophet, and he goes to confront this wicked king and his wife Jezebel, this Ahab. And Elijah gets there, and he walks right up to Ahab's face, and he says, look at, at the screen, 1 Kings 17, 1, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except by my word. Now, this is the pronouncement of judgment on the nation of Israel. So Elijah delivers this message, and then he goes into hiding for three years, and it does not rain. There is a drought. The economy is wrecked. People are experiencing the judgment of God. And so after three years, God sends Elijah now out of hiding, out of the wilderness, back to Ahab. And when he walks up to Ahab, Ahab looks at Elijah and he says to him, you, prophet of God, you are the troubler of Israel. You're the reason for all this pain and suffering. And Elijah fires right back and he says, no, sir. You and your wicked leadership is the problem with our country. And the only reason I'm not making a, an analogy to contemporary politics in the United States is because of enormous personal uh, reserve. <laughs> Take, you have no idea the willpower it takes right now not to make the analogy. This will be a contest then between the prophets of Baal and Elijah. Look at 1 Kings 18, 21. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. See that last phrase? But the people said nothing. Here's the prophet of God saying, would you make a choice? Would you decide what God you're going to follow? This is a story about choices. This is the admonition to pick a God and serve him. Don't waver or hobble back and forth between gods. Choose the one you will serve. Baal was the God of the Amorites, 
the Moabites served a god called Molech, which we've referred to. Baal was the storm god, in other words, responsible for weather, good crops. So he had to appease Molech, Baal, in order to get good crops. And Molech is the god who wanted your children. So he said, you make up your mind. If money or pleasure-seeking or entertainment or sports or social status or social media or even your family or your children is the most important thing in your life, then serve that God. But if God is God, make the choice to put him at the center of your life. But the people said nothing. Why do you suppose they were quiet? Well, maybe they're just contemplative like some of you are right now. Maybe they were wondering, you know, I really don't want to have to choose. I kind of like my life the way it is. I like to be religious when it's convenient, comfortable, timely for me, and I like to do my own thing otherwise. So I don't like the idea of having to choose one way or the other. They wanted to have it both ways. They wanted to have a casual relationship with God when it was favorable circumstances. So the contest is ensued, and there are 450 prophets of Baal, and this is how the contest was set up. They would build an altar, pile up some rocks, put some, some wood on top of it, butcher a bull, lay it there on the offering, and they would call for fire. They would call out to their god Baal that fire would be sent from this, from this god and consume the offering. And the God who sends the fire, they determined ahead of time, would be the true God. Elijah would then do the same with an altar he would build. And so this is what happens. We find it in 1 Kings 18, 27. And so Elijah, looking at the prophets of Baal, trying to ask for their God to send fire, he says to them, shout louder, he said. Surely he is a God. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy. Or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. This is a prophet now practicing sarcasm. <laughs> sarcasm, by the way, uh, sounds appropriate here, but sarcasm is actually not a spiritual gift. <laughs> so it should not be practiced, for example, on your spouse or in the church. I've been told over the years by some of my uh, uh, critics, that I'm a bit too sarcastic. Having, I know, it's shocking. All of these, all of these concerns people have with me, including my wife, I, they're just hard to imagine. So I've learned, that, though, that sarcasm basically is an expression of anger. So if you find yourself angry, uh, sarcasm comes easy to you. And I feel a little justified today because, you know, Elijah, he wasn't just a casual guy in history. This is a guy, this is a guy who actually went to heaven on a chariot of fire. A special guy. He, he, uh, he is the same guy that appeared at the Mount of Transfiguration in the New Testament. Jesus went up on this mountain, took a couple of the boys with him, and there he was transfigured before them with Moses and Mr. Sarcasm, Elijah. And so that gives me some comfort. <laughs> so basically, he's trash-talking the prophets of Baal. He said, maybe he's on vacation. 
Or maybe he's just asleep. He doesn't get up, you know, before noon on Wednesdays. <laughs> maybe he's busy. And by the way, the term translated busy in the text here, this is English translators, English scholars cleaning this up because, because the word busy from the original Hebrew actually implies that he's relieving himself. Maybe your God's in the latrine. Maybe he's using the outhouse. Maybe he's indisposed. May not be available for a while. I mean, it was something. She's Have you ever been trash talked in your life? Now, some of you know that I, ha I haven't had an athletic background. And just, just for context, the older I get, the better I was. Okay? That's just how it works. So please take this with a grain of salt. Um, I've been trash talked a lot in my life, especially in an athletic setting. You know, a common trash talk would be something like, I don't even know why you're here. Why did you bother to show up? I'm going to embarrass you. I'm going to make you wish you hadn't, you hadn't played against me. You know, this is, that's trash talking. I, I get that. Some of you have heard me tell the story of um, my college career when I actually competed one night against Larry Bird. Now, Larry Bird, for those of you who don't know that name, you should actually um, get a life, and <laughs> use Google, Larry Bird, just like it sounds, and just check it out. You know, if you, if you were born in 2010, you don't know anybody except John Moran and Seth Curry. If I don't mention those names, you don't know who I'm talking about. That's why I say you haven't been alive long enough to really know what's going on. So look it up. Learn some history. Larry Bird played at Indiana State University. His senior year led the Sycamores to an undefeated season and competed for the national championship game against Michigan State led by Magic Johnson. Historic kind of characters, icons of basketball. When Larry Bird was a junior at Indiana State, he was starting to come into some national prominence. No one really knew for sure that he was as great as he was going to be. And I was a senior at the time. It was his junior year. We played at Valparaiso. My roommate, Dan Rourke, and I were assigned the task of guarding Larry Bird. Larry only scored six points in the first half, and we didn't think he was all that much. Larry scored 36 points in the second half of the game. This was before the three-point line, and so Larry scored 36 points in about 18 minutes. In my face, just like that. Early in the second half, Larry is walking the ball across half court. I was there ready to meet him, and then I experienced a level of trash talking that I have not experienced before or since. And Larry looked at me and said, just loud enough for me to hear, no one else, he said, I'm going to dribble to the top of the key, cross over, dribble, and then shoot the jumper. He, he paused and he said, and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> Wait a minute. I've been trash talked before, but no one tells you ahead of time the move they're going to make. And so I just thought, well, he's just trying to trick me. He's trying to deceive me. You know, I'm, I'm too compli complex for that. And so I know what he's up to. He's just going to try to drive past me, you know, and get an easy basket. 
And so I was all set up to keep him from driving past me when he comes to the top of the key, crosses over, shoots the jump shot. I turn around, splash, which happened 15 consecutive times (laughs) after that. 15 in a row. The next time down the floor, we're down on the low, the, the low box, down into the basket. You're all Hoosiers. You know this terminology. And I'm next to Larry, and I've got a hold of his jersey this time. So wherever he goes, I'm going with him. And he says to me, just loud enough for me to hear, he said, there's a down pick coming. He said, I'm going to go out to the elbow. And you know where the elbow is. That's the free throw line extended right there on the corner of the lane. And so he said, I'm going to go to the elbow, catch the ball, shoot the jumper. He hesitated, and then he said, you'll be too late. (laughs) And then that's what he did. And that's what I was. (laughs) You're looking at someone who actually understands what the prophets of Baal were going through that day. No matter how hard they tried... They just kept getting trash-talked, and they knew they were in trouble. And I get that. It's an amazing moment. (laughs) 1 Kings 18, 27. And so they shouted louder, slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Now you think, well, this, how barbaric is this? These guys are cutting themselves now with swords. They're screaming, and they're dancing. They're all in a frenzy, and they're trying to get Baal's attention, send fire. Blood's now running down their chest and down their arms. And you think, well, that's how creepy, how barbaric, how... How crude, how terrible is that? And you, and, you, and you imagine that. But let me just remind you that people today are willing to bleed for their gods. They are and they do. They're willing to sacrifice their spouse and their children for their gods. They take their time, their energy, their money, and they invest in their gods. And all the people around them are sacrificed. And there's blood all over the place. Blood everywhere. Blood in our families. Blood in our schools. Blood in our churches. Blood in our abortion clinics. There's blood everywhere. People lost and hurting, confused uncertain about the world, the values they should live by. Because people are serving the wrong gods. You know, there's a huge debate now in America around the subject of abortion. It's about time. Listen to me. You can ignore God in your life. Pretend like he's not there. Pretend like he doesn't care. Pretend like he's not watching. Pretend like he's not invested. Pretend like he's not involved at all. You can ignore God. Lots of people do it. But you do so at your own peril. You create 
ultimate uncertainty in your life when you ignore God. But now we have in America people who are so possessed by their ideology that they're willing to oppose God, to stand in defiance of God, to shake their fist at God and say such things as human life isn't sacred. Human life is disposable. Human life doesn't ultimately matter. It's not the precious gift of God, not, not a part of your original design and intent to ultimately spend eternity with all of these precious human beings, the apple of his eye, forever with him in intimate fellowship. No, no. We've all just evolved here. We came from nothing. We're going nowhere. So it doesn't matter. Listen, if you oppose God, you do so at your own risk. You're asking for it. And so it is right for us to have the debate, and it's right for godly people to stand up for the values that we know are true and right. And so here we are. First Kings 18, verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. Now note the first thing he does in the text here. He says he repaired the altar of the Lord. Now listen, we could spend the rest of the year on that theme. He repaired the altar. He repaired the altar. He repaired the place where people go to think about and to serve and to give themselves to God. He repaired the altar. And if there's one thing that we need to do in America today above all the other things that need to be done is we need to repair the altar that brings us closer to a returned relationship with God. This is good preaching today. It's really good. So good. You're doing good, Greg. Keep going. I don't care what people are saying. You're doing good. So Elijah prepares this sacrifice. He rebuilds the altar. He piles up 12 big stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Wood on top of that. The sacrifice, the bull on top of that. Then he calls for water and he saturates the whole thing with water. The sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the trench around the, around the altar is all wet and saturated completely. And notice that he's not shouting He's not dancing. He's not jumping. He's not shaking. He's not cutting himself. He's not begging. His energy is calm and assertive. Now to verse 36. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. I imagine, I visualize this, is he's prepared the altar and now he starts his prayer. Lord, answer me. And he's backing up. He's backing away. Can you see the people backing away from this? Lord, you're the, you're the God of Abraham Isaac and Israel, you're the God whose covenant promises are yes and amen. 
You are the God of gods. And you're going to turn the hearts of these people back to you. So answer me and send fire. My God. Can you even imagine? Next verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell. Well, now, what, what do you imagine that was like? The fire fell. What does that look like? What does that sound like? I mean, what's the heat intensity? What's the brightness of that? I mean, come on. This is a moment. And the fire fell and burned up the sacrifice, burned the wood, burned the stones, burned the soil, licked up the water in the trench. This is, this is God showing off. And when the people saw this, what do you suppose they would do? Now they're all making a choice, at least for that day. They fell prostrate, cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Wow. This is quite a moment. This is quite a moment. And we have a moment right now where we have the opportunity to choose as well. We may not see fire from heaven today, but we have imagined that the God we serve is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's the God who responded to the prayers of a prophet named Elijah in the face of an evil and perverse generation that needed a wake-up call. And so here we are with the same opportunity to choose. If God is first place, then make him first place. And if you do, it will directly affect the way you use your time, your energy, your money, and all the rest. And if you're anything like me, as I've already confessed earlier in this message, you will have to make the commitment over and over and over again to keep things focused on things that really matter. Because I don't know about you, but I have, to, I have to go to the altar on a regular basis and get my focus back in place and to, and to reestablish my values and my priorities and my convictions and what I'm living my life for. We all have one and only one life to live. We don't have a moment to waste when we could be living it for Jesus' sake, for the honor of God. So we have a choice to make. So my simple invitation for you today is to choose. Choose what God you're going to serve. And then follow that God. Follow him with all of your heart. And you'll not be disappointed. One more statement. I'll put it back again. You've seen it before. God invites us to enjoy all his gifts, but to worship him only. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us to no longer waver between two opinions. So easy for us, for me, for us, to get caught up in lesser things small things, petty things, material things, goofy things, lesser things. Lord, forgive us. And even those things intended to be gifts to us, financial blessing or meaningful careers or precious friends or amazing children and loving, devoted spouses, even these kinds of wonderful gifts can be a distraction to us we lose our focus. So Lord, today we choose to worship you and you only, to find our security, our identity, our satisfaction, our ultimate meaning 
in you. Lord, we present our hearts at your altar today. Hear our prayer, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Would you stand with us?